Most days uh, when I go home, uh, there is a uh, there's a tail wagging, body shaking, tongue licking dog. <laughs> Why would she have to say that? <laughs> Pooch, dog, uh, named Jordy, who's uh, thrilled to see me. And, uh, you know, whatever kind of day I've had, good, bad, ugly, when I go home, I know I'm going to get this great affirmation. And she's either standing at the top of the stairs if I come through the garage, or she's kind of trying to get out into the hall where she doesn't belong if you come through the front door. But... She wants nothing more than to be with me when I get home or with anybody else, frankly, who's coming in the door. You know, if we're downstairs watching TV, she's down there with us. If we're in the library reading, that's where she's at too. She loves the family. And all she wants to do is be with us. So no matter what kind of day you've had, you know, whether it's considered high praise or not, that one dog at least values you, thinks highly of you, loves you. And on this Sunday before Christmas, what I want to emphasize related to the incarnation and the Christmas story is this. It's simple. It's just this. That the incarnation, that Christmas should remind us like nothing else can, that God loves us. And we'll look at this in just a few ways. First, though, think about this. If you look at movies or you listen to music, whatever the medium is, or you read magazines... How often is love a theme of what we're singing about or writing stories about, uh, writing magazine articles about, making movies about, right? Love, love is in the air. Love's everywhere. For all that, though, how many people do you know that you would either say they're really loving people or they feel loved? Or for yourself, do you think, I'm a person that feels loved? The culture talks about love all over the place. And yet on the flip side, we'd probably say or acknowledge it's a culture that lacks love. And it's interesting, if you put redemption in this uh, arena of love in general, it makes it safe to say that there's no human need that's greater than the one that is simply to be loved or loved and affirmed, or accepted. You could probably substitute a number of terms there. We'll just say loved this morning. Um, think about this. We, we humans, we sin, we err in a number of ways, and sometimes for a number of reasons. But think about how much of our sins and our vices are motivated by a desire to somehow fill the void inside us that we're born with, Fill the void inside us that's looking to be filled that just means we feel that we're okay, that we're acceptable as we are, that we're not deficient. How much of the sin and vice in the world goes on because people aren't sure they're loved? And because of that, they try and fill up those voids, those hollow places. They try and find something that's a substitute for affirmation and love through vices, sins, pleasures, one thing or another. Or even, even on the more mundane, <clears throat> if you meet new people, you feel nervous or anxious. And if you do, why, why do you feel that way? Or if I'm going to teach on Sunday morning, and I know I'm going to come up and stand in front of a group of people, or sit, as the case may be, and talk, why might I be nervous? 
What's that about? Isn't that really about this, this fearfulness that I'm not sure I'm okay? And I could be affirmed or I could be rejected when I meet that new person. Why do I care if I impress someone else? They're dust like me. So why would I care? Because at the base of this, I think all of us, we look to other people for this sense of affirmation and love to tell us that we're okay. And you know, really, since the Garden of Eden, since our first parents sinned and fell, you remember the first thing they do? They get the leaves out, right? They cover up because they know they're no longer what they should be. They're not okay. Morally and spiritually, they're deficient. And the first thing they want to do is cover up and hide that sense of shame or of not being fully what God made them to be. And that's true for us today. And it's true even for most of us as Christians that we still haven't plugged in adequately to the truth, the simple truth, that God loves us so that, that the truth that we are already loved and affirmed and accepted and approved by the only one who really matters in the end, that should transform the way we live. But even as Christians, the simple truth that God loves us at Christmas or Easter or any other time is something that I think most of us still have not, myself included, laid hold enough in the ways that we should because if we do or when we do, it transforms the rest of the way we live life if we know God loves us. So this Christmas, the story of the incarnation, just let me suggest this, should remind us that something very simple but very profound, something life-changing, that God loves us. Jesus had a discussion in John 3 with Nicodemus and it was kind of a story about rebirth and kind of fundamental things. But Jesus said this to Nicodemus, this, this kind of exalted guy in Israel, this teacher of teachers. He said, The Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal or everlasting life. God loved the world so much that He gave His Son so that we could be saved. If you try and quantify, my wife asks me an unfair question all the time. She says, how much do you love me? So this is the joke at our house. I say this, infinity lies between my fingers, honey. That's how much I love you. Or, that's the correct answer, by the way. Or, I say I love you just short of idolatry. Or Bob, Bob Hannibal was stroking up brownie points this morning in Sunday school. To know Sandra was to love Sandra. And I thought, yeah, now I'm with him. I, we know what we're supposed to say. We, we know the word. And we feel that way anyway. But uh, how much does God love us? How, much, how do you measure God's love for us? John 3.16 says something about it. God loved the world, we could say, paraphrase, so much that He gave His only begotten Son. So to the question, how much does God love us? God loves us as much as it's possible for an omnipotent, eternal God to love because He gave the one thing, the one person that He loved above everything else in the world He gave His Son ransom for our sins to redeem us back. So, you know that for us to get any kind of grasp or hold on how much, how fully, how high, how wide, how deep God loves us, 
you've got to have some estimation of the value of Christ. Because God gave Christ for us. God so loved the world, that's you and me, that He gave His Son. He gave Jesus Christ for us. So that means how much God loves us is relative to or tied to the value of Christ Himself. How much did God love the Father? Or how much did the Father love the Son? Because He gave the Son for us. And guys, this is the thing. We can't scratch the surface of what this means. What's the value of Christ? What's the value of the Son to the Father? What's the value of the second member of the Trinity, the omnipotent, eternal God? You can't get there. But that's how much the Father loves us because that was the price of our restoration. The eternal Son was the cost of God's love for us. So if we ask God, God, how much do you love us? It's kind of like saying, infinity lies between my fingers. Or Google. Or just short of idolatry. God loves us as much as it's possible for an omnipotent, eternal God to love us. Which means it's, it's more than we can ever get our minds around or our hands around. It's eternal. It's fathomless. It's limitless. If we have some estimation, however little it is, of the value of Christ Himself, that's how much. That's the value of God's love for us. Hard to get a hold of. Think about this too. This does not put it in perspective, but it gives us a way of thinking about it. Who or what do you treasure most in the world? And would you be willing to give that person or that thing up for someone else? And then hold that thought for a second. Who or what do you value most in the world? And would you give that thing or that person up for your neighbor that you know a little bit? And hold that thought. Who or what do you value most in the world? And would you give that person or that thing up for the person at work that hates you or disses you at school or whatever? Because that's the kind of love Jesus says God has for us. What do you value most? That's what God gave for us. In 1 John, there's a similar theme about loving and giving. In chapter 4, the Apostle John wrote, The one who doesn't love doesn't know God, because God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, or showed, put on display, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Long word, kind of old style word, but the satisfaction, the the sacrifice that could bring man and God together again. So God puts His love on display, John says, in Christ coming into the world in the incarnation and then later in the crucifixion and the resurrection. So, Why did God the Father send Jesus, God the Son, into the world 2,000 years ago for Christmas? That incarnation, God with us? Because He loved us. Because He still loves us. Because He chose to set His love on us. That's why we have Christmas and the incarnation. The celebration of Christmas every year is a fresh reminder that God loves us. And His love is unimaginably deep, wide, 
whatever terms you can try and think of. His love surpasses anything we can get our hands around. Uh, there's a movie that uh, our family enjoyed several years ago. Uh, Robin Williams w- was starring in it. It's called What Dreams May Come. It's a, Visually, it's a very graphic movie. It's got some really wacky theology, which I'm not advocating. But on another hand, it, it has a very lovely picture of God the Father and Christ's love for us. In this sense, uh, in the story, there's a husband and wife with two kids. And they, they're well-to-do, they're affluent, and they're a happy family generally. And life is kind of as good as it gets on the earth. And tragedy strikes one day when both of the teenage children are killed in a car wreck. And the mother of those two kids, the wife in the story, she uh, develops severe depression. And she's institutionalized. And and at the end of this process of grieving and depression, she, she takes her own life. She commits suicide story goes a little further, and the husband later is, is also tragically killed in another car wreck. And the theology gets a little wacky when, after death. But when they go to the afterlife, which isn't really heaven, because the film has some Eastern Hinduistic type uh, philosophies, but when he gets to heaven, when Christie, the husband, gets to heaven, and I don't know if it was intentional on the author's or the scriptwriter's part to name the, the hero in this Christ, Christie, or not, when Christie gets to the afterlife, this place of comfort, and it's sort of, it's everybody's best ideas of what heaven would be like. That's what this life is like. When he gets there, he looks for his wife. And he's told that his wife's not there. That because she was a suicide, she's not only not there, she can't get there. That she is in a hell-like existence of her own mind that has trapped her. And that he can't find her, number one. And even if he could find her, number two, she is so locked in her own view of, of, the, of life and, and the world that he couldn't convince her that that's not true, couldn't convince her to leave with him. But Christie tells the naysayers in this, this middle heaven, as it were, he says, you don't realize our love for each other. I'll find her and I'll bring her back. Or... I'll perish, so to speak, in the trying. And so Christie goes to this hell-like place because he's determined in love for his wife. He's either going to redeem her or he's going to perish with her. There's a sense in which that's exactly what God's view was towards us. The resurrection was always a certainty, so it's not as if Jesus was going to stay dead. But God basically said... I've set my love on those humans, those mere mortals on that earth, so much so that I'm going to go down and at this huge, immense cost, unimaginable to us, I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to go into the pit of hell itself. Jesus takes our sin on himself on the cross and I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to buy them back. That's the kind of love God has for us. Now, if we get hold of the fact that God loves us, This is huge. It's life-shaping. It's transformational. But there's a sense in which it's not enough. If we know God loves us, that's good. If we know God loves us unconditionally, that's better. I say that for this reason. If I think that I have something to do with God setting His love on me, then it's up to me to make sure God continues to love me. That is, I've got to remain lovable 
If God's love to me is dependent on me and my attitudes, my speech, my activity, my actions. So on one hand, I'm thrilled to hear God loves me, but on the other, then I'm kind of worried because I'm thinking, okay, well, I've got to make sure I don't blow this. I've got to stay lovable or I'll lose God's love. This is a silly illustration, but think of this. Um, can't, no mean to offend here. If I was bald... And I was a man or a woman. Could be either. Uh, And I think bald's not my best look. I might go out and buy a wig or a toupee, right? And and I'd get, you know, the one that fits just right and makes me uh, look young and virile, you know, right? Yeah. And, uh, And I'd put on my best look. And I don't know anything about wigs or toupees. I'm assuming there's something that holds those things on, sorry. Some glue or something, you know, spit, I don't know. But, uh, you know, if I, get that, if I get that wig or that toupee on, and I'm looking good, and I'm feeling good about my appearance, and I go out into the world, it's like, I'm all right, you know, I'm looking my best. People, people be impressed, looking good, feeling good, you know. What if it's a windy day, though? Oh my goodness, maybe my spit dries up, you know, that was holding that thing on, or maybe my glues, I don't know. How might I feel if I'm wearing that wig or that toupee on a very windy day? You know what I'm doing? I'm hedging everything I, I, right, I put my head down. Or have you seen the guys where the hair on one side's this long? So they, you know, have you seen them on a windy day? You know, it's out here because it won't stay on top. Does anybody wear their hair that way in here? No. <laughs> Hope I'm not giving offense, sorry. Um, <clears throat> you know, because then the thought is, I'm looking okay as long as that hair's wrapped around okay, or the wig's staying on. What happens if a strong wind pulls that thing off? You know, suddenly I'm undone because now my baldness is showing. I'm not showing you my best side. I'm feeling a little unhinged here. So if I think my acceptance from you is based on my appearance, I'm going to do everything I can to keep that wig where it belongs. I'm going to worry about it. I'm going to be stressed about it. And you know, most of us bring that same thing to this equation of life, that even if we get it to some degree or another that God loves us, He set His love on us, we still on the other side, we're not quite at peace because we feel like, well, that's great. God loves me. I'm I'm good. I've started well. But now I've got to remain lovable. As long as I've got that, as long as I'm hung up on the possibility that I'm going to lose God's love the rest of my life, you know what I'm concerned with? Staying lovable. Staying lovable. I'm really not free and I'm really not at peace. So let me ask you this. What were we like when God set His love on us? What were you like? before you were saved? Are you with me on the question? What were we like before God sent His Son into the world? Paul talks about this in Romans 5. He says this, God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Are you guys getting feedback or is it just me up here? Sorry. Um... We have no estimation, frankly. We not only cannot measure God's love, we can't measure His holiness. When it says we were sinners and God is holy, guys, this is trouble. Because a holy God can't tolerate sin. So when Paul says, while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us? This is a holy God doing something that a holy God normally doesn't do. This is way, way, way out of the norm. Holy God loving sinners that he otherwise cannot associate with. He goes on and says, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Is there anything I can do with this, Eric? Up higher? Um, Sorry. Um, If while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So, what were we like when God the Father sent God the Son on this rescue mission? Paul says we were sinners in front of a holy God, and we were... We weren't neighbors, we weren't friends, we were enemies of God. This is the point. God set his love on us when we were at our worst. God chose to love us when we were sinners and enemies, hostile. We weren't nice people, guys. We kid ourselves on this. We're not nice people. There are no nice people. Paul's already made clear in Romans, there's nobody who seeks after God. We're not nice. We're not holy. We're not kind. In and of ourselves, we're deficient. So God loved us while we were at our worst. You weren't lovable when God set his love on you, and neither was I. You and I did nothing to earn or merit God's love. He set his love on us because he chose to. Not because we earned it or deserved it or were lovely. And this is the freeing part of this truth. If I did nothing to earn or merit God's love, guess what? I can't lose it. If he loved me at my worst, and now through faith in Christ I'm his son, Paul says much more now will be saved. As a person who's come to life through faith in Christ, guys, God's love to you is unconditional. He loved you at your worst. He didn't love you because you were lovable. He doesn't love you now because you're lovable. He loves you because He chose to and because He now sees you in Christ. Think of this too. All of your sins to God, when Jesus died on the cross, all of your sins were what? They were future, right? And how many of your sins did God know about when Jesus died on the cross? Did he know about the sins up to today? And, and does he know about the sins that you and I will commit this afternoon and tomorrow and next week? You get where this goes? We don't surprise God with our sin. We surprise ourselves sometimes. We surprise each other. But we don't surprise God. God is omniscient and he's eternal. And he doesn't learn anything. He knows everything. So when he sent Christ the Son to earth in the incarnation, and when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he knew every last sin you and I will ever commit. How many of your sins were on the cross when Jesus died? All of them. God loves you unconditionally. You didn't merit it. All your sins were known to God. The ones you and I don't know about today, they were known to God, are known to God. And He loves us anyway. He loves us unconditionally.
Christmas is a great time to remember the incarnation is proof that God not just loves us with this eternal valueless, so to speak, a value we can't get to love, but he loves us unconditionally. You know, he also loves us redemptively uh, in a reformation sort of a way. Do you know if God loved me just the way I was and he loves me unconditionally, I'm thrilled because now I'm safe, I'm secure, life's good. But then you know what the problem is? I start seeing the kind of person I am. It's not a good thing. Uh, You know, when we start knowing what's true about God, then we start seeing what's true about ourselves. And we realize the chasm of difference between what we're called to be and what we are. That we're not what we should be. Well, the upside of that, the story of the incarnation, crucifixion and resurrection, is that God's love is not only set on us, it's not only unconditional, but it's redemptive. That is, God is in the business of restoring us to his image. And actually, think about this. You know, in creation, in Genesis 2 and 3, when God makes man, it says he makes them in his own image, right? We were his image bearers, and we still are. But what's the problem with the image? It's fractured. It's distorted. Why? Because of sin. So originally, we were God's image bearers, but then sin came in. It changed that whole image-bearing ability Excuse me, that we have. Jesus comes into the world, sets his love on us, redeems us, and then begins this process of redemption and restoration to recreate us more fully into the image of God than we ever could have been in the original creation. You know, before we were creatures bearing God's image, but what are we in redemption? We're actually God's children. And not only God's children, we're actually, we're Christ's bride as well. We're his beloved He takes that image bearing from the original creation and he multiplies it in redemption. So he loves us just as we are. He loves us unconditionally, but because of that love being set on us, he's determined to redeem us. And that process of redemption starts in this life. And it's kind of two ways. It's both um, God's at work in us, changing us. And then sometimes it's it's the negative side. You know, if you have kids, uh, there's a passage in Hebrews 12 that says, no discipline at the time seems joyful, but sorrowful. Sometimes God's reformation or redemptive work in us, it's corrective in the sense that uh, he allows or sometimes he causes painful things in our life to get our attention or to let us know you, you need to quit doing that. You know, like a parent would with his child. In fact, in Hebrews 12, the author says, if you don't get this kind of training... You're not God's because God trains all of his children. That's redemptive. That's reformational. That's God's love actively at work in our life to reform us after his own image. There's another passage in Ephesians 5. This talks about Christ's love for the church, but of course the church is just Christians corporate. It's it's who we are corporately. It says this about God's love towards us. In Ephesians 5, Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. 
the work of God in your life and mine today in this redemptive fashion, it's sanctifying us. It's setting us apart from what we shouldn't be to what we should be. It's cleansing. It's washing away the things that shouldn't be part of who we are as new creatures in Christ. And it's actually, this is a great word, this glory. Uh, that the glory of Christ is being revealed in us as Christians more and more over time as we more and more gain His image. So God set His love on us. It's unconditional, but it's also redemptive. It's this process of restoring to us His image. You know, when we're honest with ourselves, we know that we are not what we should be. And God takes the initiative to not only save us, but then begin that process. It lasts our whole lifetime. And then it's fulfilled at the resurrection. When we gain our new bodies, we'll be all that God ever intended us to be. Nothing short of that. But as long as we're alive in this earth, God's love is actively at work in us, bringing about this redemption, this transformation back to His image. So at Christmas, when we think about the Incarnation, it's a great reminder again that Jesus came to the earth. He loved the church, gave Himself for it in the Incarnation and in crucifixion and in resurrection because He was going to cleanse us and set us apart for Himself. You know, it said that uh, you can't act higher than your beliefs. That is, what we think informs what we say and how we live, the choices we make. Uh, this is profound. Um, I'm convinced that we, and by we I mean both the church in general, the church in the West, and I mean we of the Holy Lion and Lamb, that we live shallow, uh, sorry, vacuous lives to the degree that we fail to get hold of what's true, to know what's true that if we could get hold of the notion and the truth that God loves us, what that love is like, what it cost God, that it's unconditional, and that it's redemptive, it would change the way we live. It would make us deep Christians. It would make us thoughtful. I was thinking about applications uh, related to this, and frankly, I, I didn't want to say almost anything. I just think, if we just think about this this Christmas... Just think about the notion that God loves us. Sorry, this is getting worse over time. Uh, If we we got a hold of this in any degree that was significant, it would change us. It would change the way we think of ourselves. You know, it would be inherently humbling, wouldn't it? God doesn't love me because I'm lovely. God loves me because He's loving. That's humbling. Guess what? That makes me thankful also, thankful to God. But you know, too, if I realize God loved me in spite of myself, then that that affects the way I see other people, too. God loves them in spite of themselves, too. In fact, if you do a study on this thing about love and God and us, this is what comes up again and again and again. I said I wasn't going to bring in application, but I guess this is. Um, It says, if we love God... That love is obeying His commandments. And if we know anything about God's love, we turn around and we love other people. And that's the way this thing works. That if we get hold of the truth that God loves us and what that looks like, 
It changes who we are. It changes the way we see ourselves and God and others. I don't think we could afford to be shallow Christians if we had some significant grasp simply of this simple concept, Jesus loves me, this I know. That would be enough to turn our lives upside down. Personally and towards others as well and towards God as well. It changed the way we live. It changed our sin. It changed our worship. It changed the way we treat our spouses, our children, our friends, our neighbors, our enemies. If we could get hold of the truth that God loves us, what that love costs him, the value of that love, it's unconditional and it's redemptive. This is transformational. The Father loves us. He sent the Son. The Son loves us. He came and died for our sins. And the Spirit loves us and is with us today in us to communicate the love of the Father and the Son to us today. It can't get any better than this. God's love at Christmas. The incarnation should be this reminder that God loves us. And it's a love that is transforming. It's it's bigger than we can get our minds around. But even if we get a little bit of it, it'll change who we are, how we see life and how we live. So this week, this Christmas, this Christmas Eve, when you go about the task of opening Christmas gifts, think about this. The, the greatest gift, the gift in the end, the only one that really matters, you already have. If you've trusted Christ, you have the only gift in time or eternity that matters. You have the love of God given to you in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you and I have that, if life's short, we're good to go. If life's long, we're good to go. And come eternity, we'll be face to face in glory with Christ. And it'll just get better and better over time. Let's go ahead and pray.